Okay, read with me in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to read 28 through 30. God's word says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Amen. We're going to be focusing our time specifically on verse 28. And I think that this passage will just be an incredibly helpful passage to you guys um, because this passage can, it has the ability, if you'll let it, if you'll grab onto it with faith, it has the ability to, to make you, uh, help you to live a non-anxious life. It, it has profound power to give you confidence in whatever might happen in your life. What the, you know, the most unimaginable consequence, you know, the thing that you dread the most happening, whatever that is, the news you dread receiving, the thing you're, okay, as long as that doesn't happen, what this verse is saying is that uh, you actually don't have to live in fear of that thing, that he works together all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we live in a world, I mean, I don't even think I need to say this. I think it goes without, without saying, right? We, we live in a world of just incredible anxiety. I mean, we're scared of everything. I was just, you know, it was like a big news article, right? Diet Coke might give you cancer, right? And everybody freaks out, like aspartame, oh no, right? We're, we're terrified about our food and our drink. What's in the water? I gotta get a filter. I can't drink the tap water, right? We're just freaked out about this, that, and the other. I, I, are we gonna get an A? Are we gonna get a B? What's this girl gonna say when I ask her out? What's that guy, you know, is anybody ever gonna ask me out, right? We're just terrified all the time, it seems like. In general, we tend to live anxious lives. And here's what I, I'm just really hopeful I'm just really hopeful that God will uh, use this verse to, to make you um, an unanxious person, right? To make you, as maybe as the more popular phrase, anti-fragile. You are not a fragile person. You are able to handle hardship in your life, whatever may come, whatever may come. That's my hope. Jesus tells us that to live an unanxious life in the Sermon on the Mount, that we need to have our eye on, on God's providence, right? God knows uh, every sparrow. There's not a single sparrow that falls to the ground apart from the knowledge of God. And, and, and we are worth many sparrows. So he's saying you should not be anxious. And what's he rooting that in? He's not rooting it in anything that's inside of you, okay? Uh, if you look inwardly, if you're resting on your own abilities to go through any kind of trial, you certainly will be an anxious person, certainly. He's wanting to root your confidence and assurance in the providence of God. And what we have here in Romans 8, 28 is um, this, like, this, is, this is just profound, right? I know it's, an, it's a verse that we all know probably. It's a verse we're all familiar with. But if you were just reading through Romans 8 for the first time, and maybe some of you have had this experience. I hope you have. You're just reading through Romans 8. I, I think if you're understanding 828 rightly, you would stop and you would just, is this really true? And you would feel like you were, you know, digging in a mine and you found all kinds of gold and silver and all these things. And then you get to this verse and it's like you hit with your pickaxe and you just see the most brilliant diamond you've ever seen. The most brilliant ruby or sapphire just gazing. And you say, is this really mine? 
I, I, I can just take this, right? It's like the pearl of great price, except you don't have to go sell your house to have it, right? If you're in Christ, this is a profound and amazing promise that will sustain you for the rest of your life. It's the kind of thing that I think you should purpose. You should make it a goal to meditate on this truth until it's something that is uh, like a fixture in your life. You know what I'm saying? It's, the, it's something that defines you as a Christian, you're thinking through your personality and who you are and how, what you're passionate about. And this verse ought to be one of those things. If you can do that, if this verse can so work its way into your mind and into your soul that it becomes something that you rejoice in and delight in and believe, you will become anti-fragile, unanxious, able to look at the world and say, do your worst, right? And we need that. We, we desperately need that. We desperately need people like that in the world. We need people that are able to disciple other people to be like that. We need that to multiply in God's church. We need courage. And Romans 8.28 ought to be a profound source of courage for you. So we're just going to work through um, kind of phrase by phrase. We're not going to work uh, in line. We're going to start with we know. We're going to think about what he means by just that little phrase, we know. And then we're going to skip that those who, uh, for those who love God and come back to it when we look at called according to his purpose. And then we're going to look at uh, uh, all things work together for good. And we're going to work backwards through that phrase. So I don't, a little... It'll make sense when I'm going through it, okay? So we're going to go, we know, and then for good, and then uh, all things work together, and then for those who are called according to his purposes. I'm going to pray one more time. I just really want God to bless. So Lord, I, I just ask you again, please, Lord, please make this a reality. I um, pray for the soul uh, that's uh, just wrestling with really hard news, God, or, or that has really scary news on the horizon, maybe even, Lord, that is anxious about many things. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you'd use this to calm and still and quiet their souls. Bless them, Lord. Please bless them and speak to them through your spirit. Uh, we thank you for this scripture, Lord, and I just ask you again, please come and do a work in these students. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we know. Let's start there. We know. Verse 28, and we know. Now, there's a kind of thinking in the world today that you have probably been influenced by more than you think you have. I go on campus, we go on campus and we table and, and we go out every Wednesday and we're just stopping and talking to students and inviting them to things and getting to know them. And one of the things that just always shocks me, okay, a question that I ask, and I think somebody gave us this question at a spring break trip in Florida. I don't, I don't think I came up with it. One of you guys came up with it. I don't know who it was. One of, your, one of the directors was, is truth something that is uh, uh, created or discovered? I love to ask that question. And, and what I've seen is, you know, five years ago, maybe like 40% of students would say it's discovered. And now today, fast forward, like 95% of students say it's discovered. Whether they're Christians or not Christians, wherever they go to church, whatever they do, they say uh, truth is something that you create. Almost all of them are saying that. What is that? What's, the, what's coming from behind that? What's going on? Well, it... it um, it, I don't want to be too nerdy here, but it grows out of a kind of philosophical system about knowledge or epistemology from a guy named Rene Descartes. He's famous for that phrase, I think, therefore I am. And basically, in a nutshell, what the prevailing notion of how we can have any kind of knowledge in society is um, that you actually, you can't. It's, it's this radical skepticism it says, you're human, language is imperfect, you're not that smart, so it's actually not possible to ever know anything. It's a profoundly like, sad worldview, really. Like, you can never know anything, so just give up. And what it leads people to do is they say, well, if I can never know anything for sure, then I guess I'll just live my life based off whatever I want to be true. Whatever I want to be true will be my standard of what's true, what, what is true. 
and, and, th- and then I'll at least be able to have some happiness because I'll say, this is true and this is what I want and, and I'll be happy if I get what I want. And so this way of knowledge or this standard of knowing your feelings will lead me to happiness. And here's what it always 100% of the time will lead to. Every time it has to. It will always lead you to being a slave to your own feelings and desires. In other words, it will always lead, lead you to be a slave to your flesh. Does that make sense? If your standard of truth is what you're feeling, what should I do or not do? What should I believe or not believe? If that's based off of your feelings, then you will always follow your heart. And that's a really, really bad thing if you're a Christian, right? Well, it's a bad thing for everyone, but we know our hearts are not to be trusted, right? My, my, my heart, my feelings, my emotions, that changes with the wind. You know, <laughs> one minute I'm feeling this way, the next that. One time I'm feeling that and the next that, right? This kind of epistemology can only lead to despair and sorrow, right? But everyone, nobody gets off the hook here. Everyone has to choose a standard of truth. Everybody has to choose a standard by which they're going to judge if something is true or not true. The world chooses their feelings. They create what's true and not true. And as Christians, what we must do, and especially, listen to me, if you're a young Christian, especially, you, what, what you must do is say, God created the world. He has all authority. Jesus says he's the way and the truth in the life. He is the revealed word of God. And God communicates himself to me by this word. And therefore, my standard of truth is this word. For a lot of you, that's a no-duh statement. But here's what it looks like on the ground. It looks like when you're reading the Bible and you read something that doesn't feel good, you have to, your standard of truth will decide where you go, right? You're reading the Bible and it says men and women are different and they have different roles and wives should submit to their husbands and that doesn't feel good. Well, what's true? Your feelings or God's word? You actually have to make a decision in that moment, right? Like you have to make a conscious decision. What am I gonna believe and how am I gonna live my life? And if you always choose to go with your feelings, you will become a slave to your feelings, a slave to your flesh. And in the end, it will lead you to incredible sorrow. But if you're willing to humble yourself and say, I actually don't know everything. You're you're right, Renee. I I don't know a lot of things, but I know that God's word is true. And so I'm gonna submit to that. And you choose to go with God's word every time you hit one of those curves in the road. I, I don't care what it, what it is. I don't, I don't care if it's um, you know, God's grace, that God could have grace towards sinners. And that, I don't know if he could have grace towards me. No, you don't go with your feelings. God's word says he has grace and mercy on sinners, on all who believe. And so you go with what God's word says. If you will settle it in your heart that God's word is your standard of truth, then you can really know some things. And if you can really know some things, you, be, you can become a man or a woman of courage and of conviction that can actually stand firm in a storm when things don't go well and right. And we all want to be that kind of person, don't we? Nobody wants to be the child that's tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. How do you get to be like that? Well, it's by being subjective. How do you get to be the kind of person that stands firm? And as convictions, you humble yourself and you submit yourself to God's word. That's how you do it. And what Paul is saying here is he's saying, we know. He's saying this is, the truth that he's about to say isn't some harebrained idea that he came up with on his own. It's not the kind of thing that maybe it's right, maybe it's not right. No, he's saying, we, there's a lot of people, there's a consensus. Maybe it's when he, maybe he learned this when he was studying under Gamaliel. Maybe he's talking about the Jews in general, people that know the Old Testament. We, we don't know exactly what it means. Maybe he means the church in general, but he's saying, no, this is an established fact. We know. It's a promise. Take it to the bank. 
Now, um, there are some things that you should doubt, okay? I know I've been talking against doubt a lot, and I think that's good and right. Now, now let's talk for a second about when you should doubt something. Doubt can actually be a really good thing. Uh, like when you get, a scan, you get a call from a number you don't know, <laughs> and they're like, hey, I want to sell you insurance or something. <laughs> doubt, really good thing there, okay? Really good. We actually had a gal get scammed, and I wish she would have doubted a little more. <laughs> Yeah, I know, that car warranty, that's right, yeah, we've all gotten that, right? Doubt, in other words, what doubt does, how it functions is uh, doubt stops you from leaning all the way into a certain proposition. That's what doubt is. It's like a holding back your trust, holding back yourself from fully believing something, and that's actually a really safe and wise and prudent thing to do if you're not totally sure about something, right? So I have opinions about the end times, I have an eschatology. I think, I think I know how it's gonna go. I think I know what the scriptures teach, but I'm not gonna stand up here and teach that like I know it and you need to know it and you need, you need to believe it. Why? Because it's still kind of unclear to me, right? Um, I'm not saying that there's not a truth out there. I think something is totally true. I just am, have not settled. It's unclear to me. And so I've got, uh, I think, a healthy doubt there that leads me to just hold that and be willing to change, not sell out for something that I might be wrong on. What Paul's saying here is don't do that at all. Don't have any doubt at all is what he's saying with those two words, we know. He's trying to increase your confidence. He's writing to the Romans and he wants this to be something that they don't doubt at all. He wants them to take it to the bank. And if they're wrong on this, right? If, if it turns out they should have doubted, man, this is horrible for them. This is a horrible job of pastoring by Paul. If he's telling them to believe something that's not actually sure, like if I were to teach you the end, my end times view, like I was totally sure of it, right? That would, be, that would be wrong pastorally, especially if I turned out to be wrong but this is the inspired word of God. And Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I think when he writes, we know, it's because you really can know it. You can put your full confidence in it. You can lean into it and you won't get scammed. You, it, it won't be wrong. It will bear fruit for righteousness in your life. Verse 28, we know. What do we know, Paul? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Let's take a second and let's look at this phrase, for good. What, what is this good that he's talking about here? Well, we can't really understand this good unless we understand it in the whole context. That's why I kept on reading down to 2930. So keep reading with me with this good. Ask the question, what is that good? Ask that in your mind. What does that mean, good? Okay, and now read 29 and 30. For, okay, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And now 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. I think that that is the good he's talking about. The good that he's talking about is your sanctification, is your holiness, that's what the whole context of Romans 8, 28 is talking. He's talking about your salvation. This is the great golden chain of salvation that can't be broken from beginning to end, predestination to glorification. 
He's talking about uh, your good being the fact that you will someday look like Christ, which means that this good that he's talking about is not some kind of fuzzy, general, everything works out for everybody kind of good, right? It's not like you get that Lamborghini. It's not that good. You get everything that you've ever wanted kind of good. No, he's saying that all things work together to conform you to the image of Christ. And that's better. (laughs) That's even better. So here's an exercise I want to do with you really quick. I think this is really helpful for struggling marriages. I think that this exercise is really helpful if you've got somebody in your ministry that you're struggling to love. Um, I think this exercise is um, just helpful to get you to love people more in general. Here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to think about this. God is, God is promising Okay, uh, you guys are taking the gospel class, right? And what God is saying here is, is the, your salvation is not just that you're, you're justified, but also that he is remaking his image in you. He's taking you back to Eden. You will be remade perfectly in his image, which is the image of his son. You are God's workmanship. He's working on you, so to speak, like Ephesians says, right? And that means that someday, if this verse is true, and it is, you will look like Christ, you will be conformed to his image. Whatever sin you're wrestling with, you won't wrestle for it with it forever. Okay, whatever thing that's in you that's just gross and ugly, it won't be there forever. Whatever's good about you will be totally amplified. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes. If you're willing, you don't have to close your eyes. If you want to, if you're that kind of guy, if you're, if you're comfortable with that, if you want to keep your eyes open, fine. Um, I always think, sorry, when somebody's preaching and they say, close your eyes, I always have this like totally irrational thought that they're going to run around and like steal everyone's money or something. You know, like, you know, I don't know why. I'm always like one eye open. Like, you know, like, why do you want me to close my eyes, buddy? You know? So if you want to keep your eyes open, keep it open. All right, it's fine. I'm not going to steal anything. Uh, but, uh, if, if it would be helpful to you just to get distraction out of your mind, and I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to think of, if you're married, think of your spouse. If you're not married, think about the person in your ministry that you struggle to love the most. Don't tell them. Don't elbow anybody, okay? <laughs> Who's the person you struggle to love the most, all right? You know they're there. We all know they're there. <laughs> and then here's what I want you to do. I, w- I want you to imagine them perfected. Okay, I'm serious now. I want you to imagine them perfected. All their sin is gone. Those things that make them so difficult to love, those idiosyncrasies, those insecurities, those things that they do, they're washed away. All that pride is turned into a humility that makes them just want to weep. You know what I'm saying? All, that whatever it is that they do, that bother, it, you know, it's gone, and all the good things about them shine. <laughs> All the good things about them look like Christ. You look, like, you look at them, and that's the closest thing you'll see to Christ. If you were to see them now, today, C.S. Lewis says, you'd be tempted to worship them. Imagine them like that. Imagine them glorified, perfected. Okay, you can open your eyes. Isn't, I don't know if you'd, I, I, that's just so helpful. Isn't that amazing? Those are the people that you're doing life with. That's the person that you're married to. Those are the people that you're side by side with, the eternal souls that someday are gonna be perfectly made into the image of Christ. Perfectly looking, they'll still be them. They'll still have their personality and you'll still be able to recognize them and know it's them and see them and talk with them and laugh with them and remember life with them, except they'll be perfected. I just think that's amazing. And what he's saying here in Romans 8, 28 is God is working all things towards that end. Everything's working towards that. 
There's not a single thing. Let's look at the all things now. There's not a single thing that is not uh, getting you to that point. All things. I don't know if you guys have ever read that um, or, or listened to that song, Though You Slay Me by Shannon Shane, and it's got that John Piper, you know, sermon jam in there. <laughs> I think it's awesome. I love it. And John Piper says, I don't care if it's cancer or criticism. I don't care if it's slander or sickness. And to that, I would add, I don't, I don't care if it's you inheriting riches or losing everything in the stock market. I don't care if it's the girl of your dreams telling you yes or telling you no. I, I don't care what it is. I, I, I don't care if it's people that you love deeply choosing to shipwreck their lives with sin or a person turning to Christ with fullness of faith and joy and love. All things means all things. All things God is working together to get you, to get the, those who love him, those who are uh, on this chain of salvation to that place of looking like Christ, of getting to that place where you were imagining that person to be like. All things are working together for that purpose. That, that's insane. That's amazing. There's nothing, there's no situation in your life that you're gonna run into that doesn't fit into that promise. Literally nothing. All things means all things. That's profoundly good. And so let me address some of the questions. Any, anytime I teach this or anytime I talk about this, there, there's always the whatabouts, right? Okay, but what about this? Okay, but what about that? Okay, what about sin? But what about this hardship? What about my family? What about that they did to me at that time? Are you telling me that's gonna work out for my good? You're gonna tell me that? And I just wanna have extreme patience and humility and with tears in my eyes, I wanna say to you, yes. Why? Not, not because I want to minimize your pain. Not because I want to minimize your suffering. I, I'd be a fool. I'd be an absolute fool if I didn't say we've got you know, over 200 people in the room, if I didn't think you guys were going through some actually really deep and hard and dark things probably. That there's some people that are going through some incredibly difficult uh, things that if you told me, I'd probably want to cry with you kinds of things right now in your lives. And I'm not minimizing that at all, but I am telling you that God's word is God's word and we must believe it and stand on it. And it says all things work together for good. All things God will use to conform you into his image. If you struggle to believe that, all you need to do is go read the Old Testament. <laughs> Guys, that is a dark, dark, dark book, right? That, that book is not PG, you go read Genesis, right? And you read this story about a family and, and, and the brothers hate one of the, one of the other brothers and they hate him so much. Just seriously, just don't, you know, don't make this just a fairy tale. Like imagine if you did this to one of your siblings. You hate them so much that you plot together to murder them. That would make frontline news, right? Like people would hear about that. And then one brother manages to convince you to just sell them into slavery instead. You and your family are man-stealers. You're so wicked. And not only man-stealers, just somebody you don't know for your own brother. That's insane. I'm confident that none of you experienced anything that dark, that evil, that wicked, that wretched, that horrifying. And what does God do? Well, uh, Genesis 15, 19, but Joseph said to them, do not fear for I am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. 
God used Joseph being thrown into a pit, and then God used Joseph being accused of adultery, and then God used Joseph being forgotten in prison to exalt him to one of the highest places in Egypt. And then what he did there is he caused the prophecy of all those men bowing down to him to come true. And they all fell down and started you know, bowing down to Joseph and asking him not to destroy them. That's what comes right before the verse that I just read. He causes it all to come true. It works out for good for Joseph, but it works out even better. Their incredible sin, wanting to murder their brother. You wanna talk about all things. They tried to steal and sell their brother into slavery and God worked that out for good in the sinners. Like he saved their life. Like they would have died of famine. And not only that, he profoundly humbled them and seems to have made them more into the image of Christ through doing that. As you read Genesis and you see the progression of these incredibly wicked brothers that kill whole villages and things like that to the point where they're bowing down to their brother in humility. No, friends, God can work all things together for good. He can work all things. Go read Job, right? (laughs) Are you kidding me? His everyone dies, everyone, like all his kids if I lost one child, I'd be a mess. And he loses all of them seemingly in a day. And then he loses his health and his well. He loses everything and his wife turns against him. He's, everything's gone. And then you read the end of the story. And what do you find? That at the end of it, Job, Job has a more profound knowledge of God than he did at the beginning, right? He knows God in a way that almost nobody else, I think, in the history of the world has known him. He puts his hand on his mouth and says, I, I thought I knew you, but, but now I see you, right? And God gives him everything back tenfold. And not only that, it's written down for our good and it's encouraged countless people for thousands of years. Friends, God can work all things together for good. But we need to look at this phrase, work together. Well, what does he mean by this? What does he mean work together? Well, what you should, what you should, uh, what you should see here. Um, is he's not saying that those things in and of themselves are good. That's really important for you to see. Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery was not good. That was not a good thing. That was evil. That was wretched. That was sinful. When he says they work together for good, he's inserting a time element there, basically. He, he's saying that they're, uh, it's incredibly dark and incredibly difficult to see, and you might not understand at all right now, and that's fine, and that's okay. But in the long run, with the time element, those really, truly bad things, legitimately bad things, legitimately evil and sinful things are going to produce that good, and that good is a specific good. It's you being made into the image of God kind of good. And here's what this means. This is good news. If we get this wrong, if you take this verse and you think it means that the bad things are actually good things, it'll do incredible damage to you actually spiritually. And especially you men. Like what it'll lead you guys to do is instead of you who love the Lord hate what is evil, you'll say, well, nothing's really evil. You'll kind of turn into these weird subjectivist kind of guys where you say nothing's evil. God uses all things for good. Therefore, all things are good. And that's not true. That's a false equivalency. He works all things together for good. That does not mean those things themselves are good. They might really be evil. And guess what, men? God made you strong in order to fight against evil. Like that's why you literally have more testosterone and more muscles in your body, right? To work hard, to to raise a family and take care of them and also to fight against what is evil. And if you have some misguided notion that there's no evil in the world and there's nothing threatening your family and nothing threatening your church, what it'll do is it'll turn you into an, un, an effeminate little boy instead of a man that stands and fights against what's wicked and evil in the world. 
And so you need to know that this is not saying all things are good, but it's actually saying that all things work together for good. And then the second thing that is important about knowing this is you don't need to feel guilty when something awful happens in your life and you weep over it. You don't need to feel bad. when It doesn't mean you don't have enough faith when something horrible happens in your life and, and you hate it because those things really are bad. One of the things about our culture that I just frankly can't really stand, which is kind of, you know, it it gets me, because I'm a pastor and it frequently runs up against my job. I, I, oh man, maybe I shouldn't say this. Maybe I'm gonna offend some people. If I offend you, I love you, okay? Um, I, I just can't stand calling funerals celebrations. Guys, death is not a good thing. Like there's one sense, yes, I know, I understand. Like you're, you're with Christ, you're in heaven, that's a, that's a good thing. But death is an enemy to be conquered. The last enemy that Jesus conquers will be death and it will be no more, right? And I understand when to celebrate someone's life because you love them and I, and I get that, but the, we, we've just totally forgotten how to weep and mourn in our culture. We have no idea how to do it. And I think it's caused untold damage in people's souls, right? Like my mom died just a few years ago and I had no idea what to do. No idea. Like, what do I do with my emotions? Why don't I feel more sad? Should I feel more sad? Am I supposed to weep? Do I not weep? What am I supposed to feel? What am I supposed to do? How the heck do I grieve? Nobody's taught me how to do any of this stuff. And what I see some Christians doing is horrible things happen in their life and they quote a verse like this and they just smile. (sighs) You who love the Lord hate what is evil. Guys, just the the fact that God works all things together for good does not mean that all things are good. And it is good and right and godly to grieve and lament what is not right in this world, right? That's what our Lord did. And he knew for a fact that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. (laughs) He knew it was going to work out for good, and yet he still hates what's evil. He still weeps over it. He still has sorrow for it, right? Oh, man. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's just amazing. All things work together for good. You don't, you don't, you don't have to call those things good in other psalms, but what it'll do, what this verse will do, is it'll give you a way to really truly weep over what's difficult in your life without being hopeless. It'll give you a framework and a a pillar in your life so that you can actually hate what's evil when you're going through hard times and not become this bitter, angry person that just thinks life's meaningless and hopeless. You can actually hate what's evil and weep over what's sorrowful while maintaining hope. That seems to be what Paul does. Let me just read it for you here, 2 Corinthians 4. I'm gonna read you 11 through 18. It's quite a bit. He says, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. I don't, you know, I don't get the sense that he's writing that with a chipper smile on his face. So that the life of Jesus may also, may also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Jesus is revealed. People are looking more like him when they see him. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also, raise, uh, will also will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake. Do you see the profound hope he has in the middle of the suffering? It is all for your sake. 
so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It, do you see? He's just repackaging everything we've talked about here in Romans 8.28 with difficulties he's actually facing in his own life. None of this compares to what God's creating in me and in you. He doesn't just think that his hardship and suffering is doing something in his life. He has an understanding that it's actually transforming the people in his life as well. And it's actually causing them to look more like Christ. So what this verse enables you to do, if you'll believe it, if you'll say this is a promise of God, he says we know it. And if you'll grab onto it and say, I will not let go, what it'll enable you to do is be the kind of person that incredible hard things happen in your life and you're able to bear them with steadfast courage and hope. That's, that's desperately needed. That's desperately needed. And then here's the last thing that this means. If all things work together for your good, um, well, I, I guess here's what, here's what we need to do. The last bit of the verse that we haven't hit yet. We know that it is for those who love God, all things work together for good. It, this is not for everybody, right? For those whom he foreknew, right? Uh, those who are called according to his purpose. Those who he uh, justified and those who he justified, he glorified. He's talking about a very specific group of people here, right? He's talking about Christians, that there are tons of people in the world, more people than not probably, that this verse does not apply to. There are so many people in the world that bad things happen to them and it, and it destroys them. It causes them to become angry and bitter and frustrated with God. And in their spirit, they get so discouraged that they flee from him and run away from him and go medicate with all kinds of things and they die and perish in their sins. But for those of you that are in Christ, that's what I want to really focus on. For those of you that, what does it say? Love God. Those of you that love God. Those of you that are called according to his purpose. What this means is there's nothing. There's, there's nothing that can stop you from becoming conformed to his image. It's a train that's going to keep going. There's nothing that can stop about it. Stop it. If all things are being used to conform you into his image, there's nothing that's not conform, able to conform you to that, right? There's nothing that's gonna go the other direction. Your sin will not actually be able to hinder the plan of God for your salvation. You can be totally assured of your salvation if you are in Christ. Nothing can happen. People outside of you sinning against you, sin that's within you, right? A broken family situation, you know, a, a, a mental defect maybe of some sorts. Nothing, nothing. All things will work together for your good. Uh, when John Piper is making this point, I think he, you know, I just want to give him credit this is where I learned it from. Everything I'm saying I learned from somebody. None of it's my idea, but anyways, uh, I remember that he's the one that uh, said this first, but he, he pointed out, and, and it just kind of blew my mind the first time I saw it, was you, you guys remember the passage in Corinthians, I think it's 1 Corinthians, where they're taking the Lord's Supper wrongly, 1 Corinthians 11, and he says, this is why, my brothers, many of you are, uh, you know, sick and dying. <laughs> he says, this is, okay, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we have judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. What's he saying? What's Paul saying there? He's saying some people are dying. Literally, God is killing them. Why? 
so that they won't be condemned. In other words, if God says, I'm just gonna let you keep going on this track, taking the Lord's Supper wrongly, looking down on your brother and sister, you are gonna perish forever. And so instead of letting that happen, I'm willing to do the most extreme thing, dead. (laughs) That's really good news. Guys, God will kill you before he lets you die and go to hell, right? If you are in Christ, he'll kill you before he damns you, right? That's really good news. Somebody said slay. That's good. (laughs) I couldn't have thought of that, so. That's what he means though, right? All things, maybe even your untimely death, right? Maybe even your friend that dies an untimely death unexpectedly, maybe even that, if they were in Christ, work together for their good to ensure that they have salvation. That means all things, all things work together. That means it's secure. It means nothing, nothing's not included in that all things. That's an incredible promise. That's a stunning promise, stunning. And so here, here, here's what I mean by that. Your pornography addiction, <laughs> this is amazing, in the long run will serve to reveal the profound weakness of your flesh and it will get you to place your hope fully in God for salvation. God can use that for good in your life. Your sin will reveal to you the more more profound mercy and patience of God. Your marriage will call you higher up and higher into sanctification. Your broken family will reveal to you how precious and good and godly a family can be and make you strive for that in a way that you raise your children in a godly way and they raise their children in a godly way to a thousand generations. God might use your broken family to produce good families to a thousand generations. That's insane. Your friends leaving you will only make you a more loyal and steadfast friend yourself as you know what the pain of abandonment is like. Because of the providence of God, not because of anything in you, because of the providence of God in you, if you are in Christ, all things will work together for your good. That's just what the verse says. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just reading it. That's amazing. And if you will grab onto that, and if you will believe it, if you'll pair that with faith, if you'll just not trust your feelings or whatever doubts arise, but you'll just trust God's word, you'll become unmovable. You'll become unshakable. There will be nothing in your life that you need to be terrified of, right? You can still hate evil, but you, you, you can stay to life, do your worst, and you can stand. I've got, I've got two quotes, and they're both, kind of, uh, they're both kind of long, and so I'll pick one, and if you want to hear the other one, you can ask it for one of the questions in our Q&A, all right? All right, I'm gonna close with this quote. This is Jonathan Edwards. This is what he says. He's, he's describing what it'll be like to be in heaven. And he's describing what it'll be like to be talking with your friends in heaven about your former life. And he says, the mercy and grace of God in converting them will then appear otherwise or different to them than it does now. And he's trying to say it'll appear even more uh, amazing. They shall then contemplate the manifold mercies of God to them through the whole course of their lives. They shall see how God has protected them and guided them by his counsel and led them all along. They shall see the wonderful wisdom and mercy of God towards them in these and those dispensations. He's saying anything that happens when he says dispensations, this thing or that thing. And now that now appears most dark to them. In other words, the difficult things in your life that appear dark, you don't understand what God's doing. doing. He's saying, when you're in heaven, it'll all make sense. You'll see it. You'll understand, oh, that's, that's how God was using that for my good. That now appear most dark to them shall see the meaning of those that were the matter of difficulty to them and shall see how all things worked together for their good. That's going to happen in heaven. 
whatever it is, how, however hard it is, you'll look back and it'll all make sense. And it's a promise in God's word. So let's rest in that promise. Amen? Yeah, I'll read the other quote. This quote um, has become dear to me. This is from a guy named Samuel Rutherford. And he wrote this in prison. He was holding to a certain doctrine that was not very popular in his day. And um, it got him literally thrown in jail, separated from his, his flock, from his church. And he's writing to a gal that's also going through difficulties from prison. And he's trying to encourage her. Okay, and this is what he said. It's a long quote. So he says, if your Lord calls you to suffering, do not be dismayed. For he will provide a deeper portion of Christ in your suffering. The softest pillow will be placed under your head, though you must set your bare feet among thorns. Do not be afraid at suffering for Christ, for he has a sweet peace for a sufferer. God has called you to Christ's side, and if the wind is now in his face, you cannot expect to rest on the sheltered side of the hill. You cannot be above your master, who received many an innocent stroke. The greater temptation out of hell is to live without trials. A pool of standing water will turn stagnant. Faith grows more sharp with the sharp winter storm in its face. Grace withers without adversity. You cannot sneak quietly into heaven without a cross. Crosses form us into his image. They cut away the pieces of our corruption. Lord, cut, carve, wound. Lord, do anything to perfect your image in us and make us fit for your glory. We need winnowing before we enter the kingdom of God. Oh, what I owe to the file, file, hammer, and furnace. Why should I be surprised at the plow that makes such deep furrows in my soul? Whatever direction the wind blows, it will blow us to the Lord. His hand will direct us safely to the heavenly shore to find the weight of eternal glory. And as we look back to our pains and suffering, we shall see that suffering is not worthy to be compared to our first night's welcome home in heaven. If we could smell of heaven in our country above, our crosses would not bite us. Lay all your loads by faith on Christ. Ease yourself and let him bear all. He can, he does, and he will bear you. Whether God comes with a rod or a crown, he comes with himself. Have courage. I am your salvation. Welcome, welcome Jesus. Those Puritans, man, they were different. They were different, man, amen.